From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This month, in honour of Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee... We're celebrating her seven decades on the throne on not just the Tudors by focusing on queenship in the early modern period. Funnily enough, we're not actually starting with Queen's Regnant, like the current Queen's namesake, Elizabeth I, though we will come to her. But we're thinking today about Queen's consort, those wives of kings, many of whom are so well known to us. And I think this is an interesting place to start because there's a tendency when we think about queens in this period, to make a divide in our minds between Queen's Regnant and Queen's Consort. So to Queen's Regnant, reigning queens, Isabel of Castile, Mary I, Elizabeth I, Mary Queen of Scots and so on, we attribute power. But to Queen's Consort, the wives of Henry VIII, of Francis I, Charles V and so on, we tend to ascribe a secondary, receptive, passive role. And yet today's guest wants us to rethink that binary. Her work on Margaret Tudor, Queen of Scots, and Catherine of Aragon, Queen of England, suggests that Queen's consort also wielded power in ways that we, lacking understanding often of symbolism, personal monarchy, material culture and so on, haven't recognised. Today's podcast will make you rethink power and queenship. My guest is Dr. Michelle Beer. She's the author of Queenship at the Renaissance Courts of Britain, Catherine of Aragon and Margaret Tudor, 1503 to 1533, published by Boydell and Brewer, and now available in paperback. And she's also written a wonderful article on Catherine of Aragon's estates. So I started by asking her about what we should make of Queen's Consort. Dr. Beer, thank you so much for joining me on Not Just the Tudors. I'm a great fan of your work. I love your book, Queenship at the Renaissance Court of Britain, and it is a sheer delight to have a chance to speak to you. So I suppose the first question is about the ways in which we have underestimated the role and the nature of Queen's Consort when we think about Renaissance Europe. How have we done that? Thank you, first of all, for having me on the podcast. This is so exciting. So underestimating Queen's Consort in Renaissance Europe, it's really fascinating. I think partly we tend to be a little bit focused on the queens that kind of get all of the attention, the queen's regnant and the queen's regent who had sort of these official capacities, these official avenues of power. So, you know, your Elizabeth I's and your Marie de Guise's. And so we tend to focus on that and see that as the primary way in which women could hold power in Renaissance Europe. But really, when we begin to look at queen consorts, we notice that, you know, there's a lot of ways at the Renaissance court that women could hold informal power, soft power, if you will. They could have authority through their relationship with the king. And so when we look at queen's consort, we're not seeing them holding sort of official positions of power, but we are seeing them have a great deal of influence and authority because they have access to the king. They also have access to a great deal of resources in their own households through patronage that can really allow them to have the influence and power to make their own kind of will or objectives at the court. It's just a little hard to see because it's not in an official capacity the way that we would sort of think of it. In some ways, it feels that we've had a sort of more male view of power in the past. And I don't just mean that it was in the hands of men, but that the whole apparatus around recording it and what counted as power has been decided and written by men. Does that feel fair? 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. I mean, it is very much a centralizing view of power. It's also a little bit of a view towards what we think of a, this a state should be. So it should be centralized. It should be codified into some sort of law and governing bodies. And so we tend to focus on the state formation and the early manifestations of that state formation when we study power in Europe. And we sort of tend to discount the areas where um, the more informal or older structures of power actually still persist or are still very, very important. And that is the places where women historically have had the ability to kind of make their mark, as it were. I mean, this is also not just women, but also other types of groups who are less traditional access to power. So we're talking about folks who are not the nobility even have different ways of making their voices heard that are not within the traditional state structures. Women are one of them. Just this morning, I was listening to a recording of The Warden, Anthony Trollope's famous little novella, in which there is a scene in which the wife sits calmly in front of the archdeacon, and no one, it says, would have suspected that 15 minutes earlier he had had his head bowed and she had been berating him because the picture is one of humility, whereas actually she was influencing him and what to do. And I guess that sort of hidden nature of female power through much of history is what we're talking about. Yes, I mean, absolutely. And and it was hidden from us, but it was also sort of deliberately understood to be something that would be practiced in private by contemporaries. So when we read conduct books and we understand what was expected of women, we are not talking about having Queen's Consort stand up in front of a crowd and give some sort of great speech that wasn't really expected of them. What was expected was that they would be in the private chambers of the king and of his ministers, making their voices heard so that they could influence their decisions and then those decisions would be brought out into the public. It's definitely something that, you know, it's obscure for us because of the passage of time and the nature of the records, but also was not necessarily intended to be part of a public arena, even at the time. Now, you mentioned advice there. What sort of advice did royal women across Europe have on how to conduct themselves in their queenly role? Yeah, so we have a few conduct books that we know of that have survived that we can glean what was expected of them. Perhaps the most well-known and and certainly one that circulated a great deal in Europe during this period was Christine de Pizan's Treasure of the City of Ladies, which is sort of her counterpart to the more famous City of Ladies book that sort of outlines, you know, valorous women of history. This is more of a conduct book where she is going through and giving advice on how women in certain stations should conduct themselves. And so she focuses on the sort of the different social identities, one of which is princess or a ruling woman, a queen. And she talks about the expectations that you should be modest and you should support your husband in public, but also offer sage advice in private. But she also goes through a number of other things. So women were not just talking to their husbands and and trying to advise them as queens, but also trying to set examples. So showing off and being public in things like their piety and their modesty and maintaining a household that could be looked at as a place of, you know, good behavior, good moral standards for the rest of the kingdom. So they talk about sort of these dual or these multiple areas where queens were really supposed to be, you know, modeling good behavior, but also providing advice and seeing to the running of the household or or the kingdom, as it were, depending on their situation. And so we know that a conduct book like that, present in a lot of royal libraries, probably influenced the way in which young women were taught and also reflects the prevailing ideas. Uh, Christine de Pizan is not necessarily um, breaking new ground with that book so much as probably reflecting what she had observed in the French royal court where she and her family had access to, um, you know, seeing royal women in the earlier centuries. So we're situating ourselves for the purpose of this conversation in the early 16th century, at a time where there were several powerful queens across Europe. Can you give me a sense of who they were? The early 16th century is is really sort of an age of some really great heiresses coming out of a number of sort of different dynastic accidents, I guess you could call it. 
So we have, you know, Catherine of Aragon's mother, Isabella of Castile, is a queen in her own right in Spain and also has a famous marriage that unites the Spanish kingdoms with Ferdinand of Aragon. And she's, you know, she's a queen regnant, but she's also held up as sort of a model to which her daughters should also aspire to in terms of her piety and also her political acumen. But we also see elsewhere in Europe, we have Anne of Brittany, who becomes queen consort of France and was in her own right Duchess of Brittany and sort of unites Knights Brittany with the French state in this sort of centralizing momentum that we're getting, and a number of other powerful women in Italy who sort of preside over a lot of those Renaissance courts that we associate with sort of the glitter and the excitement of humanism and Renaissance artists. Those are um, in many, many places being patronized or supported by the elite women of those city-states as well. And we're going to be focusing on two that you've written about particularly Margaret Tudor, Queen of Scots, and Catherine of Aragon. I feel that Catherine of Aragon may be pretty familiar to many of my listeners, but can you remind people who Margaret Tudor was (laughs) and her position, I suppose, in the great scheme of things, but also anything about her character that we should know? Yeah, Margaret is definitely a a less well-known figure, but she's a very exciting figure. And I definitely recommend if you're interested in this period and you haven't heard of her career, looking more into what she did in her lifetime is a really kind of fascinating study. So she is actually the eldest daughter of Elizabeth of York and Henry VII. So she's the older sister of Henry VIII. And she is raised at the Tudor royal court. She's educated alongside her brothers. We know that she had, she received a fairly decent education. We know she was a very musical princess, which a lot of the Tudors were musical. It seems to have definitely been a family trait. She was betrothed at a very, very young age of about, she was about 11 when the betrothal happened to the King of Scots, James IV, who was in his 30s at the time. So there's a pretty significant age gap. But this betrothal was part of of a major peace initiative between Henry VII and James IV in an attempt to end the fighting between England and Scotland that had sort of been endemic in the borders throughout the 15th century. And so she eventually goes to Scotland in 1503 to marry James. She's only 13 years old and then becomes queen consort of Scotland for 10 years. And by all accounts, seems to be relatively successful. You know, she's very young, but she seems to have been very active at the Scottish court. She gives birth to a number of children, only one of whom survives. And then in 1513, her husband leads a very kind of impetuous invasion of England and is killed at the Battle of Flodden Field. And she becomes, at the very young age of 23, a regent for her infant son of Scotland. And so she has, after that, a varied career. She's regent of Scotland for a few years. She then makes a sort of a secret marriage to Archibald Douglas, who sort of ends her regency for a while. And she has this kind of very storied career after she becomes queen, where she's going back and forth between England. She's attempting to kind of maintain the peace between England and Scotland, even into the reign of her son. And then eventually she, you know, she settles in Scotland and eventually passes away shortly before um, Henry does, actually. So it's, you know, a very exciting history. I don't even have time to get into all of her antics after the death of her husband, but uh, definitely worth a read and and a sort of a very kind of determined woman, I would say. She certainly wasn't one for taking things laying down and, and definitely had a sense of what was due to her as, you know, a tutor, a daughter and a wife of kings. And talking of a wife and daughter of kings, that is also, of course, true of Catherine of Aragon. And one thing I think that we should say about her early on is it seems to me that because of the nature of the end of her marriage to Henry VIII, because of Anne Boleyn, essentially, those first two decades of Catherine's reign and Henry and Catherine's relationship seems so often kind of overlooked. What do you think we should make of her and and of that partnership in those two decades? It definitely almost always is read in light of how it is going to end, which is a bit of a shame. So, I mean, the first is to sort of get a sense of how long their relationship was. So they had known each other since 1503. They get married in 1509. So we really are talking about, you know, two decades worth of marriage. And, you know, Catherine is a little bit older than Henry. She has had a lot of uh, political experience before she marries Henry because of her time in England before the marriage actually takes place. So she really understands 
questions sort of the political landscape of Europe at the time. And she becomes really an advisor to Henry in their early years of their marriage. Henry takes a lot of advice from her in regards especially to foreign policy. But she's also a very vibrant participant in the, the Tudor court. And we sort of tend to think of her as this kind of short, dowdy like lady who kind of isn't very fun and is kind of um, depressingly religious. But especially in you know the first decade or two, she's participating in all of the, the joys and, and the fun of the Tudor court and is really kind of a partner in Henry, both politically and, and culturally and socially. And that makes it sort of a really interesting kind of dynamic to study. One thing I will say is that I would caution not to assume that this is necessarily a love match. We can't really kind of read that on to arranged marriages for the royals during this period. Certainly Henry and Catherine use the language of love to communicate with each other. They seem to have had a very positive relationship with each other, very fond of each other at the beginning. But, you know, this is clearly also, you know, a very political, practical marriage as well. So it is something that we sort of need to bear that in mind, that it is more than just a two people um, getting married. It's two dynasties getting married. It's two political forces joining together as well. Yes, and I suppose even when Henry says things to, I say, visiting Spanish ambassadors or whatever, about how much he loves his wife, it's all political. <laughs> the person was political, the, the 1970s feminists say, and it's really the case when we're thinking about the courts of the early 16th century, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, it makes it a little more difficult for us when we're reading these, how much, what do we read into these phrases? But there was just an expectation that you would use the language of family, of affection, of love. But that didn't necessarily mean they were completely insincere. It was just a different way of, of thinking about that kind of relationship and the ways in which you would address each other and, and maintain those relationships. But absolutely, the personal is very much political during this period, especially for royal women. There's a lot of symbolism bound up in their relationship with the king and, and it is within their sort of political interests to maintain that relationship and to maintain the closeness that that kind of provides. But also, you know, the personal is political in literally the daily life. So what are you doing as a royal woman, how you are dressed, how you behave in public, also how you behave in private, who you are talking to, who is serving you, literally the people who, you know, um, clothe and feed you are in some ways political appointees who are there to make their career at the Tudor court. And so it's all bound up together. There's not really any way of teasing those apart during this period. And I want to go into each one of those things that you've just mentioned. But before we do, can we talk about something that is deeply personal and also deeply political at the time, which has been so much part of how we have seen these women, particularly Catherine, who's been characterised through the tragedies of biology, that she experienced stillbirths or infant deaths of many of her children and Margaret did as well and they have this in common and I find it absolutely fascinating that you have explored this by looking at the material culture of their courts. So I wonder what your research into material culture has you think told us about or tells us about their experience. This was a really interesting avenue to explore because the material culture, and when we say material culture, we're talking about all of the tangible goods that are ordered and, and created in preparation for a royal birth. And, and, and a royal birth was a sort of a very momentous occasion where you would completely almost re-upholster the queen's chambers. So new bed hangings, new sheets, special pallets for them to lie on, clothing for them, cradle and special materials for anticipation of the baby. And all of this was designed really to celebrate and exalt the queen's state, the impending birth, and to really publicize the sort of strength and legitimacy of the dynasty that this birth was going to cement. Because, of course, giving heirs to the dynasty is something that was very, very important for queens to be able to do. And so all of these hangings that were in, you know, very lush fabrics, velvet, sarsenet, some cloth of gold, and gorgeous colors of blue, um, were really kind of of designed to emphasize the importance of this event for the court as a whole. And what is very interesting is the childbirth rituals that surrounded this would celebrate the queen as she entered into her chambers. And then she would actually remain isolated for several months, you know, up to the birth and, and then usually several weeks after the birth, um, only being served by women. So actually quite isolated from the court, which normally would you would assume this would be kind of a bad thing. This would be, you know, out of sight, out of mind. 
But really what it's doing is kind of emphasizing the importance and the sort of specialness of this period and the ways in which she is sort of separate from the daily rough and tumble life that the male courtiers are leading outside of her chambers. And then the really fun thing about this process was then once the child um, is born and the queen has recovered from childbirth, she goes through what's called the churching ceremony, where she is ceremonially leaves her chambers. She's sort of escorted by members of the nobility, and they go and um, perform a Thanksgiving mass to give thanks for surviving the childbirth. And then she's feasted and welcomed back into the life of the court. And so this is it's this very sort of profound experience that the whole world of the court is suddenly kind of revolving around when she takes to her chambers. And it gives them an opportunity to really kind of celebrate the queen and also sort of emphasize the importance of what is about to happen or, or what has happened with the birth of her children. And it, it, it's true, both Margaret and Catherine experienced the stillbirth or infant death of many of their children. But these rituals still were practiced, you know, regardless of, you know, the outcome ultimately of them. And they continue to be practiced. So even, you know, the, you know, six, or seventh pregnancy, these were still important ways in which to kind of emphasize the legitimacy and the role that the queen played in in perpetuating the dynasty in this period. And I suppose just as an aside, it's interesting to think about how we know this stuff, because, of course, these beautiful fabrics that you've described don't, for the most part, exist now. So what sorts of sources do you draw on to get this information? Yeah, so that's one of the reasons why I really looked into material culture is because although they don't exist, the actual fabrics, the records of the purchase of them and the creation of them do. And these account books and warrants from the Royal Wardrobe Department really kind of give you great detail in terms of what is being ordered and what they're becoming. So they'll tell you the color and the nature of the fabric. They'll describe if it's a particular style, if the hangings are meant for the queen's bed or a different bed or a pallet or something like that. And you know which artisans these are being ordered from, who is delivering them to the chambers in some instances. And so you can sort of get a really interesting kind of peek into the busy business of maintaining the court behind the scenes, all of these artisans and these servants who are there to kind of support the magnificence of the court. And this is all going on behind the scenes for, you know, every major court event, really. But, you know, for for childbirth, it is an extra special occasion that kind of comes up that we can kind of see this happening. Um, And so it really is kind of a great window into what this would all look and felt like for the people who experienced it. Hi there, I'm Kate Lister, sex historian and author. And I am the host of Betwixt the Sheets, The History of Sex, Scandal and Society, a new podcast from History Hit. Join me as I root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons. Everything from the history of swearing to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. We'll be bed hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern right up to now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 
This is After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Now that idea of huge amounts of work behind the scenes and the creation of magnificence and doing so through stuff, I suppose, is also continued if we start to think about clothing. Um, I find it fascinating to think about clothing in the past. So how do queens at this time use their clothes to assert their status and I suppose their identity? Yeah, so absolutely during this period, you know, your clothing really made your identity, you know, regardless of who you were. So it was really a way in which your status in the social um, structure could be determined, your occupation, you could also determine by someone's clothes. And so obviously for queens, this becomes very, very important because there really is only one queen in the country and they have access to very exclusive materials and fabrics that really denote how they are exalted and different from everyone else around them, including the nobility. So there are specific sumptuary laws that govern what people can wear during this period, and the royal family is always the ones that can only have access to things like cloth of gold, which is, is fabric that is has gold thread woven through it, literally, sort of shining and, and, and really kind of very brilliant, very expensive, but also silks and velvets and things like that. And all of these very rich materials could then be fashioned into styles that would further kind of elaborate on the queen's identity. So not only would she be royal, but she may also wear styles that are specific to her homeland, for example. Um, so Catherine was known for wearing Spanish styles, especially at very key ceremonial moments, but also just to really emphasize the richness, their femininity, and also to bring in the rest of their entourage. So they would expect to dress their ladies in similarly rich fabrics. They would all be sort of wearing a livery, gowns that would kind of denote their membership into the household. And this would kind of give the queen's presence sort of a lot more weight behind it. She would have her entourage, she would have these ladies and also her pages and gentlemen all kind of wearing similar or matching livery outfits as well. So this is all kind of a way of denoting the specialness of the queen, her rank at court, and giving her sort of honor and status through the clothes that she wore and the clothes that her servants were wearing as well. Gosh, I would have liked to see those displays. I mean, to get a sense of what that might have looked like. And I think this is so helpful as well, because so much of the time we think of these people solely as individuals and we don't think of them in the context of this great panoply of court life. You know, all these people around them who are dressing to their order. And you touched there on Spanish clothing that Catherine might have worn at certain points. And we often hear about, you know, French fashion or Spanish fashions. What did this kind of decision to wear a certain national fashion denote? What did it convey? In wearing sort of a Spanish dress, she's really kind of reminding the court where she came from, the importance of her dynasty, which at that period, Spain was, you know, one of the two big sort of superpowers in Europe, essentially, and really kind of emphasizing her international connections. But she also used the Spanish identity very strategically. So this would be brought out at moments where she's trying to make a political point about the importance of the Spanish alliance, or trying to emphasize her loyalty to Spain, um, potentially when that alliance is in jeopardy. But she also would take opportunities where she would not emphasize her Spanish identity. And so she would wear badges that denoted loyalty to England, for example, at certain points instead. And so it's really a very strategic deployment of something like this. It wasn't sort of a, I'm always in Spanish dress. It was actually more impactful because she only did it at certain times. And this dress would have been very distinctive at Spanish dress 
typically at this period would have had very distinctive sleeves that you would have noticed immediately that were sort of vertically slashed and then embroidered with gold around those slashings. They would have had a farthingale, which is sort of the large hoop skirt that we kind of associate with a slightly later period. That is actually being brought in by the Spanish during this early time period and would have been very distinctive from what the other English style skirts would have looked like. And then the hair would have also been very, very different. Spanish style hair would have been a very long braid worn down the back, covered in a very decorative net. And this is incredibly different from the way in which English or French would have worn their hair, which would have been pinned up above the shoulders and covered in a veil or a net instead. So we sort of say Spanish fashion, Spanish dress. It's also important to kind of realize that it would have been very distinctive and would have kind of stood out from the way everyone else would have been dressed at the time as well. And whilst we're on the subject, what was the difference then between English and French styles of fashion for women or for queens particularly? Yeah, so the difference really um, we see with a lot of the headwear. So the French hood is coming in to fashion in this period. And we have images that we see a lot of Tudor women wearing it. And this is the headdress that you probably associate with Tudor women when you see them in your mind's eye. It's used in a lot of the very famous portraits and, of course, in a lot of the sort of the popular depiction of Tudor women. So this is sort of a, a almost like a half crown hood on top of the head that then is covering the hair behind it. But also we'll notice that, you know, Spanish fashion tended to emphasize a lot of more darker colors. French and English fashion tended to use a lot of the sort of brighter, lighter colors in their clothing. And other than that, there's also a little bit of a climate difference. The English climate, as the Spanish ambassadors like to complain about a lot, was significantly colder than in most of Europe. And so there's also be a lot of furs worn and both edging and cloaks and things like that. So there's, you know, there's some definitely some differences that we do see here. I, you know, I'm not a complete dress historian, so I couldn't go into all of those but those are some of the major ones you might have noticed. You were doing pretty well there. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that is obvious, actually, is that Catherine and Margaret are both foreign queens. I mean, England and Scotland are very much different countries still today, but very much so at that period of time. And Catherine was the first foreign queen for nearly 50 years. What difference, apart from their clothes, did this make to their practice of queenship? For both of them, it meant that when they arrived in their marital countries, they would be bringing in with them foreign escorts, some of whom stayed for many years afterwards. They would be served by foreign ladies and some foreign gentlemen and, and servants as well. It meant that they had this you know, international outlook, this international network that they could draw on. It, it maintained connections to their home countries through you know, messages, through the exchange of gifts, also sending servants out to, you know, obtain goods and things. We know that Margaret liked to bring things back from London that she missed from having in Scotland, for example. But it also meant in sort of in contrast to maybe Catherine's English predecessors, it meant she didn't have sort of a pre-built English network of relatives and supporters the way that her mother and her grandmother, Elizabeth of York and Elizabeth Woodville, both would have had because they both were English and had English family that supported them and that they also had to support. And that family was both a blessing and a curse for both of those queens. They were criticized a lot for maybe favoring a lot of their kin. Elizabeth Woodville in particular was, was criticized for supporting all of her many siblings and getting them posts at court. But those were also, you know, really useful ways of queens knowing that they had a, a group of people that they could rely on, that they could go to. And it meant that they also understood the lay of the land in terms of the political situation that they were coming into Whereas Catherine and Margaret both had to kind of build up that affinity from scratch. They had to kind of find their own way. And in a large part, they would rely on their husband's affinity to kind of build their own group of supporters and also the supporters of the previous queen. So we know Catherine inherited a lot of the ladies from Elizabeth of York's household and a lot of her male servants and officials as well. And those became kind of the basis for her household, especially at the beginning um, as she was still just building it out. That's so interesting. And we have this great moment of them coming together in 1516 when Margaret returns to England, you know, having left in 1503, and here she is, first time in 13 years. And we have these amazing celebrations and entertainments and banquets. And from a 21st century perspective, we look at the queens and we see them being spectators. 
So can we talk a bit about their role in these entertainments and banquets? Are they being just a sort of passive, receptive, admiring audience? Or do they have something more distinctive to be doing in such context? Yes, well, you're absolutely right that they are positioned as spectators, and that is part of their role. But it's also these jousts, these tournaments, these banquets, they're very much a give and take sort of interactive performance. So we have the queen, you know, in the stands or at the head of the banquet table. We also have the king performing the role of a chivalric knight, you know, a true lover, whatever the sort of plot of the tournament happened to be. And the focus then shifts not just to being on the king, but also his his relationship with the queen. And so he is performing these jousts or these feats for her approval. She's the one distributing prizes. She is the one that receives sort of the acknowledgement and the accolades when they begin the joust. Um, and so there is a certain amount of interaction between the two. And really without sort of having that object, having that person that they are focused on, these knights don't necessarily have sort of the chivalric plot that they need to in order to perform these feats. And so we see that there is, is definitely sort of a, a need to have a woman um, to sort of fight for, as it were, as part of these plots that make up these tournaments and these banquets. And then that makes the queen's position very, very important because she becomes the focus of the joust and her relationship with the king is also the focus. And so it is, you know, performed for all the world to see that these two are joined together, the queen and the king that they are working together and that she is sort of publicly honored alongside him as part of these entertainments. And so although it seems very passive to us in the 21st century, in that period, there was definitely the notion that the audience was part of the performance and how the audience react and what they were getting out of it would dictate what that performance meant as a whole. And the queen as the audience, as the person who is reacting to the way the king is behaving is definitely kind of an act participant in what we are creating here, which is the magnificence of monarchy, essentially, during this period. Some years back, I was part of an audience of performance that happened at Hampton Court. It was organised by Professors Tom Betteridge and Greg Walker, and it was of a John Hayward's play, um, The Play of the Weather. And in the audience was Will Young. Now, I don't know if his fame has spread to America, but in the UK, he's quite a famous singer very good looking and when he was there and actually the audience was arranged with the men on one side and the women on the other so this sort of exacerbated it and everyone was watching the play but there was also an extent to which everyone was watching him to see how he was reacting to it and that immediately comes to mind thinking about how the audience at these tournaments would have been watching what was going on but they would have also been watching the queen to see her reaction to it and there's that kind of duality to it when you've got that celebrity figure in the midst that you want to see how they respond absolutely and 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 we actually you know you you mentioning that it made me think of maybe most folks could probably actually remember is the reaction of the current queen elizabeth to the opening ceremonies at the london olympics i remember there was a lot of you know dissecting you know was she enjoying it how was she receiving those you know massive celebrations and that's still something that we do today in a variety of sort of public contexts the olympics i think is one that everyone will see that happens in a, many different olympic ceremonies but that is one that sort of pops to mind because it was so well published and well publicized, I think. But absolutely, it's something that we see today and it's something, something that would have been going on then as well. Is there something also to be said about the Queen's role as a hostess? What did that entail particularly? Traditionally, women were supposed to be the hostess of the household, providing hospitality for guests and sort of presiding over all of the, you know, the day-to-day -day operations of doing that. Queens obviously did not do that, but the notion that they were the hostess still sort of prevailed in the 16th century. And so this meant that they were responsible for greeting, visiting guests, for hosting banquets, but also entertainments in their chambers, and being sort of the person that kind of made the social world of the court really kind kind of move forward. And then one of the ways in which she did that, in addition to sort of these entertainments and these banquets, was also through her household as a whole. So, you know, the Queen's household is um, full of young women who were there, you know, to serve the Queen, but also there to network, meet people, and also provide, you know, a certain amount of entertainment. They were expected to be able to dance together. They would have been musical, we know, and they would have also just interacted with the court as a whole. And so part of the Queen 
queen's hospitality was also making her chambers sort of a lively and, and welcoming place that brought the court in together. And we have this great socialization happening where we know that courtiers would go to the queen's chambers to listen to music, to gamble. We have records of, of folks losing um, losing money at a game in the queen's chambers and to network. And then, of course, the more vital and interesting potentially for historians is things like exchanging news, influencing each other, making deals, all of that sort of political actions that we can't necessarily trace because it's all very oral and very informal. That would have been happening wherever the socialization was going on. And one of those places would have been the Queen's Chambers. So she's like this magnificent landlady of a pub. She's making everybody comfortable because then all the men come because the women are there and there's an entertaining culture going on and there's fun to be had. But then, as you say, deals are done, networking happens, all that sort of stuff that really makes things move behind the scenes is going on there. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So I guess that means that music and dancing which we always read about the women of this time as being skilled in, and that's one of the things that's valued. This isn't just a skill about being entertaining. No, I think it's absolutely, it's a skill that allows them to, you know, interact and participate with the other members of the court in a legitimate way, in a way that is sort of seen as a positive. It's, of course, also very important as part of the court's status as sort of a marriage mart. So music and dancing sort of show off the attributes of these young women. And these young women were absolutely at court in part to secure marriages for themselves. And that was also something that Catherine was very interested in making sure that she would do for her ladies is to have them well married. And so it could be a number of functions for the music and dancing. It was also very important for the court as a whole to have young women, also men, who could perform these very elaborate dances and masks um, for international visitors. And it was seen as part of the way of which you could show that your court was sophisticated, that it was part of this international community, and that you were sort of an important royal dynasty was having the ability to put on these shows. And Henry himself loved to participate in them. And of course, you needed, you know, large groups of courtiers to be able to do that. And they did that in front of a number of ambassadors over the years. Yes. And the ambassadors reports are always absolutely stuffed full of all of that detail. So they clearly think it's important. Now, one thing that I think is often obscured and your work brings out is the role of queens as patrons and gift givers. (laughs) So what do you think a study of queenly gift giving can tell us? This is another one that that gets obscured because it is a little difficult to trace in the sources. They're very piecemeal. But we do know that the gifts that queens distributed really show how wide their network was at the court. Um, They're distributing gifts amongst the wider nobility to important members of the king's household, important members of just the wider nobility of the realm, also members of their own household and and the sort of extended family of the court. Um, So Catherine, for example, gives New Year's gifts to the king's nurse every year, who would have been the woman who probably was Henry VIII's wet nurse when he was young, that kind of thing. So we sort of see that this is a way in which she's building up relationships with the nobility, kind of an exchange of gifts and obligation, but also giving them sort of honor and recognition. And they are realizing that, you know, she values that relationship and that that was an important part of her queenship. And so that's sort of the distribution of gifts. But we also see that there is some opportunities that queens had to act as patrons where they secured grants and lands and properties for their servants and they were very active in making sure that that would happen with for them as well so that you know being in the queen's service was looked at as a you know a good thing for your career would have enriched you and given you opportunities at the court as well and all of that would have bound her servants and the nobility more closely to her would have made them you know appreciate her respect her and also be willing to listen to her and and take into account when she wanted something. You know, she is someone who's influential. This gives her that kind of ability to make those things happen. Yes, it's a sort of the buying of obligation is kind of important there, isn't it? Now, one thing that we're always told about Catherine of Aragon, apart from her biology, is about her piety. And I wanted to explore with you the ways in which a queen's honour and her authority rested on that kind of public performance of piety. So it's not just about what she believes in her interior and her sort of quiet devotions. It's about what she shows off in terms of her faith. How important is this at the time? 
This is very important. And we do tend to think of Catherine as a pious queen, but we do tend to think of it in terms of staunch adherence to Catholicism, probably a little over-reliant on the Pope when it comes to the divorce crisis, thinking that she's going to be able to get that taken care of through him. But really, this is something that is sort of baked into the everyday life of any queen consort, Catherine included, as part of the expectation that they be those moral leaders and exemplars for people that, you know, going back to our earlier conversation, conversation about Christine de Pizan sort of suggests that that is what a good queen needs to do is to not only give alms, but also to be publicly seen giving alms. So it's not enough to be charitable, but you also need to set the example by making sure that everyone knows that you are charitable so that they will follow your example. And so she does this in a number of ways. She has an official who is responsible for her alms called the almoner, who would be distributing her alms on sort of a very regular basis. So excess food from her household would go to the poor, for example. But we also have lots of records of sort of ad hoc gifts of alms. So gifts of clothing to poor friars, for example, show up in these wardrobe books that we were talking about before. And also um, donating and giving gifts to those who live on her lands because she was also a property owner. So she would donate alms, maintain holy sites on those properties that she owned. And so all of these sort of almsgiving acts, they are exemplary for for her people. They also do obviously cement in the popular mind her own piety. And of course, also do benefit a lot of the people that she helped out in this way. And all of that kind of builds up her reputation as being a pious queen and a moral leader, which could then sort of translate into a reputation that could withstand something like when Henry comes after her for the divorce she has that moral credibility to withstand a lot of the attacks that are being made on her during that period because of this sort of history of, you know, public moral leadership that we're seeing. Yes, and it's striking. You point out in your book that Anne Boleyn insists that Catherine is not allowed near the poor, perhaps because it gives her precisely this kind of sense of moral credibility. Yes, yes, there's several pages of argument as to whether or not Catherine is allowed to continue giving alms once she is sort of officially no longer queen, and whether or not she's allowed to practice a lot of the religious ceremonies related to queenship and almsgiving, such as the Royal Maundy, which is the distribution of alms on the Thursday before Good Friday. And there is this notion that the poor only love Catherine because of she distributes alms. Of course, at that point, you sort of realize that, you know, this is a little too little too late. I think for her reputation, it's, it's already pretty much cemented in, in terms of her status. But it's interesting that, you know, Anne Boleyn recognizes the importance of this and is, is trying to do something about that. <laughs> the other interesting thing about this is it kind of brings us full circle to what we were talking about at the beginning, because one thing you noted in your book that I found fascinating is the fact that our idea about Elizabeth of York comes in part from the fact that her privy purse accounts survive. So these are sort of the domestic spending, I suppose. And what they show testifies to her piety. And so we get this idea of Elizabeth of York as this great pious queen. But for other queens, we don't have their privy purse accounts. And so it's the comparison we have is an unfair one. And so, so much of our picture of the queens seems to come down to the nature of the sources that survive. And this has hidden or obscured parts of the characters, amplified certain parts of their characters. How much do you think that that kind of accident of history, what has come down to posterity, continues to shape and to hide the importance or influence of these Renaissance queens? Absolutely. I think it's key to sort of consider what has survived and what we've lost anytime you're assessing the queenship of a royal woman. Because, you know, and this is this is true in England, it's it's possibly doubly true in Scotland, whose royal records are even more sparse. And it means that we have to always consider that the records that we're looking at are going to be incomplete. They're going to give us an incomplete picture. And that when we do that, we are probably best served by comparing not only the women in terms of what they did, but also in terms of what records survive. So we know that, you know, Elizabeth of York's privy purse 
survives, we can look at it. We can also infer that, you know, Catherine had a privy purse. You know, it's not like they did away with that style of accounting. She needed a way of making regular spending. This likely to have reflected a very similar set of entries if we compare them. And you can do the same with, with a lot of the sources that we have for earlier queens as well. It's always important to kind of bear in mind that structures change and queenship and expectations change. But there is a certain amount of consistency between queens, especially when they're you know only separated by a few years. So anytime looking at these official records, you sort of need to bear in mind that there's a lot that's missing. There's a lot that's being obscured. Also with queens, there's a lot that's being handled by the king's side of things. So that are sort of just folded into the royal records that aren't really going to tell us whether or not it was the queen that did this or the king that did this. It was just coming out of the royal household. We don't really know where the impetus for a particular gift or warrant or patronage was coming from necessarily um, because they are so very intertwined. And this is extra, I think, important for this period because we're coming out of a period in the 15th and 14th centuries where queen's households were actually relatively distinct from the kings. And in the 16th century, they're much more meshed together. They don't tend to be as separated. They don't tend to travel as separately as they did in the earlier period. And so we definitely are sort of obscuring more, I think, of what the Renaissance queens were doing because of this kind of mixing together of the records. And then finally, in terms of of records, it's also important to kind of denote that the ignomious nature of the way Catherine ended her queenship, sort of, you know, forced into retirement, kind of discarded by the court, means that there wasn't necessarily a reason to keep her records around. In fact, there may have been a very good reason not to keep her records around. And these records were treated as sort of, you know, personal property. There wasn't any kind of like official way of documenting or or retaining them during this period. And then the same thing would have happened with Anne Boleyn and several other queens during this period. So the survival of records is very much down to chance, but also down to the ultimate fate of the queen herself, whether she is, you know, um, someone who uh, dies sort of in obscurity or whether or not she's, you know, becomes a much beloved and important queen mother, for example. So we, we sort of see that shift in the 17th century with Henrietta Maria becoming queen mother, a very important figure. We have a lot more records on her because of that in part, that because of that shift. So also another thing to kind of keep in mind when we're assessing these queens is, you know, the reasons for the survival of their records may not just be chance, it may also be political. <laughs> Although that poses the question, why do we not have more material about Jane Seymour? <laughs> Very good questions. In the circumstances, you'd think we would have loads. Well, I frankly would like to keep you talking for hours because it seems to me that you have such a, a wonderful, deep, sort of intuitive and sensible kind of understanding of the court at this time. And I feel like I've learned so much in talking to you, but I would be imposing on you too much to ask that. So I will just recommend to everybody that they dash and get a copy of your book, which is now in paperback, which is a reminder, Queenship at the Renaissance Courts of Britain, Catherine of Aragon and Margaret Tudor, 1503 to 1533. And I have so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I mean, these questions were really wonderful. I had a great time speaking with you. And I think, you know, really kind of sparked some interesting ways in which these ideas really are connecting together with, with, you know, the way that we think about women throughout history. And this has been a really great conversation. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.